Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I welcome you to our show today. Um, Lots to talk about. But before I introduce the panel and we get to our topics of conversation, I do have a couple of notes that I want to pass on to you. Um, First of all, I want to make sure that you all know about what's going to happen next week. Um, Of course, the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee is expected to go ahead starting on Monday. Uh, with their Supreme Court nominee hearings. Uh, uh, NPR will be carrying those from start to finish, and GPB Radio will carry them because we know how important the hearings are to everyone. They'll start at 9 in the morning. They're expected to go all day. Because of that, we're not going to cancel Political Rewind. We will be doing Political Rewind throughout the hearings, but it won't be on the radio on uh, Monday through, we think, Thursday at this point. You'll be able to continue if you already uh, watch us, listen to us on Facebook Live. You will be able to follow the show there. You'll also be able to uh, listen to the show at our website, gpb.org slash PR. So there you, you will, and of course, the podcast will be available as well. So we thought it was much too important as we, at that point, will be three weeks and less from the election uh, for us to, we thought it was important we continue doing Political Rewind, even though you'll find us in um, on different platforms than usual. And by next Friday, we think things are uh, likely to be back to normal. The, the Senate Judiciary Committee is expected to wrap up its work, we think, on Thursday. So we should be back on the radio as usual on Friday. And that'll be the nine o'clock and two o'clock versions of the show Monday through Thursdays. And by the way, while I'm talking about next week on Monday, we have a really terrific show lined up for you. Jonathan Alter, who many of you know from his commentary on NBC News, MSNBC, uh, former uh, columnist for Newsweek magazine, among his many credentials. Jonathan joins us for a conversation about his brand new biography of Jimmy Carter. It's really the first full-blown biography of President Carter, which is a little surprising. It's called His Very Best Life. Uh, And that'll be on the Monday show, which again, you can listen to on our website. Uh, You can download the podcast um, or you can uh, uh, get us on Facebook Live. All right, enough of that. Second, um, we are in a pledge drive and continue that pledge drive through tomorrow here at GPB. But because we think that the vice presidential debate and response to it and the other news is so important today, um, we're not going to have any pledge interruptions for the show. We're going to have a full show for you today. Um, But in doing that, as I've said on so many days in the last week and a half, if you can contribute to help us keep the programming at GPB Radio going, we would very much appreciate it. If you've already given, thank you. Um, if you haven't, go to gpb.org. We've had incredible rem- uh, responses from many of you out there who have not only pledged, but in doing so have made just really truly heartwarming comments about Political Rewind. I'm not going to read them to you, um, but I do want to, there are a few people 
who I want to thank. There's Linda in St. Simon Island, Sean in Columbus, Nadine in Swanee, Craig in Bonaire, Alan in Atlanta, um, Lorraine is in Eatonton, Carolyn is in Homer, uh, Cheryl's in Alpharetta, Victoria in Macon, Brian in Bremen, Karen in Columbus, and the reason, just a few, and the reason I single them out is to say it's really gratifying to know that we are being listened to by uh, those of you who are across the state of Georgia, not just here in Metro Atlanta. So again, if you can help us, we'd appreciate it. Just go to gpb.org. All right, enough. Let's get on with the show. Let me introduce the panel and start talking. Um, it's Thursdays, which means my partner today is Kevin Riley. He's the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, Kevin, I imagine you were up late last night watching the, the debate, but are ready to go this morning, right? I was, Bill, and I hope you'll indulge me for a moment. As you, your listeners know, we, we, we uh, work a little bit on video with the show to keep in touch with each other as we go. And as the only person on the show today with a clear head full of gray hair, I want you and everyone else to promise me, if a fly lands on my head, please tell me. Okay, all right. <laughs> Why, thank you for that commentary, <laughs> Kevin Riley. Uh, we're also joined today by one of your new staff members. In fact, I think your newest staff member, Patricia Murphy, who, Patricia, we've been introducing you on this show almost since the very start. Uh, we've introduced you with other credentials. Now, for the first time, we can say Patricia Murphy, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. What a, how wonderful. How is the new job going, Patricia? Thank you. It's awesome. I mean, what, first of all, what a time to start covering politics in Georgia for the AJC. Um, it's my hometown newspaper. <clears throat> you guys know the people on the team who are so amazing. And my, I feel like my only job every day is just to keep up with what they're already doing. So it's just been fabulous, and I'm so grateful. Um, we're going to circle back to you after I introduce the rest of the panel, because I want you to uh, expand just a little bit on this Mark Meadows wedding, because you have the, one of the two bylines on that. Uh, in the meantime, let me introduce, to introduce Professor Kurt Young. He is the chairman of the Political Science Department at Clark Atlanta University, also a professor of political science there. Uh, it's really great to have you back, Kurt. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. We were trying to get on a little earlier this week, but it worked out because I ended up having to do some traveling earlier, and that, and that didn't work out as I thought it would. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Ooh, I hope you, stayed, hope you stayed yes, safe yes. when you were Absolutely. traveling. Yeah, All right, I'm good driving. I'm oh, driving, also, so it's okay. We're also joined by Thomas Wheatley, the article's editor for Atlanta Magazine. Thomas, again, we're glad to have you back again on the, the show today. Uh, were you up late watching the debate? I was a, I was up late watching the debate. I was actually on a bike ride uh, before the debate. Then I got home, watched the debate. And uh, after that, I, I promptly passed out. <laughs> it, was, it was just all too much for me. <laughs> All right. We're going to talk about we I want to talk about uh, the, the debate in just a minute. But Patricia, let's follow up just for a couple of minutes on the story that you broke uh, in the AJC that was in the headlines of our show. So at the end of May, you report to us Mark Meadows uh, had a wedding here at the Biltmore Hotel in Atlanta for his daughter. You report it was a lavish affair attended by at least 70 people. They weren't wearing masks. 
They weren't social distancing. And this was during a time when the state had some stricter rules in place about uh, possible mitigation efforts. Tell us a little more. Uh, Yes. So um, anybody who was here in May, at the end of May, um, will remember the state had begun to open up um, operations and businesses, but still had um, very strict limits on the number of people allowed at gatherings. On May 31st, uh, the limit to gatherings from Kemp's executive order uh, was 10. Uh, There were loose restrictions if people could socially distance in large spaces. um, And that was simply not happening at the wedding. Um, there were no masks, lots of dancing, lots of enjoyment, lots of uh, merrymaking, which is all wonderful. Um, but also it really was very, very different from most people's reality at the time. Um, the reason we thought it was relevant, we certainly didn't mean to, um, you know, get in. We never like to write about people's private families. We don't like to get into that. But the reason it was relevant in this case is because uh, Mark Meadows hosted this. It was against city and state regulations um, and executive orders. And also he is currently and at the time was also uh, leading the White House's response to the coronavirus, managing the coronavirus inside the White House. And we felt that his um, his uh, approach to COVID in May was relevant because it seems to shed some light on um, what's happening at the White House today in terms of um, uh, lack of social distancing, no masks, frequent travel, lots of uh, commingling, um, uh, everything that we've seen um, publicly on the news and then privately uh, in their own lives, certainly. Um, And I think the result at least at the White House, is this incredible outbreak of COVID-19 inside the walls. And now it seems to have gotten outside the walls, unfortunately. So um, that's why we felt we felt it was um, not just a, you know, not just a juicy story because it was the, the chief of staff breaking rules, but it's very relevant to what's happening today. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And in fact, we now know that uh, some, I think it's the number is now 36 people either who work at the White House or who are in frequent contact with people who work at the White House have now uh, been tested positive for COVID-19. So thank you. It was a great story. Um, And Kevin, it leads us into a conversation now about the debate last night. It is certainly no surprise that uh, certainly Kamala Harris had every intention of making the debate as much about the president's response to the coronavirus and had in sitting separated by two plexiglass uh, screens from her. The vice president, who was the uh, head of the task force, the White House task force on coronavirus. And Kevin, let's listen, because right out of the gate, right out of the gate, Kamala Harris uh, decided that this was going to be about uh, coronavirus here. All right, we seem to be having some problem with the uh, sound bite, but Kevin, she immediately said, what she did, of course, was say that the, the administration has failed completely on dealing with coronavirus, uh, and that was her theme throughout the evening. So give us your, resp- your first thoughts about uh, the debate, and we'll go around the group and ask everybody for the same thing. Kevin? Well, I mean, without question, the uh, the biggest line of attack that uh, Senator Harris planned on, she she did not wait. I mean, her opening pitch was a fastball right down the middle at 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 uh, 
Vice President Pence, and she really delivered what will be one of the most memorable lines of the debate without, without question as well. Um, I think that the Democrats, you know, Biden and Harris, as these debates continue, realize that that is their strongest point, of course. But even the whole uh, view, the imagery, how the debate looks on television makes the, the, the pandemic front and center. You know, I mean, they had the shield up. They're sitting apart. They don't shake hands. The audience is spread out. So there's just no escaping what the pandemic has done for the country. And there's in her sights, she had the guy who's the head of the task force. There was no way she wasn't going after that. I still would like to Sam tells me that we can now play that clip and I'd like to do that. And then and Kurt, I'd like to get your response. The American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. And here are the facts. 210,000 dead people in our country in just the last several months. Over 7 million people who have contracted this disease. One in five businesses closed. And they knew what was happening and they didn't tell you. Our nation has gone through a very challenging time this year. But I want the American people to know that from the very first day, President Donald Trump has put the health of America first. I mean, quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. Whatever the vice president is claiming the administration has done, clearly it hasn't worked. So, Kurt Young, um, Vice President Pence was in what I think many people would say is an unenviable position of having to represent uh, the way the president has handled uh, the virus, which means essentially trying to make the case that they've done a good job on this. Uh, Tell us your thoughts. I noticed the same thing as Kevin mentioned, and I think yourself as well, Bill, that uh, um, Senator Harris came out uh, swinging on that topic right away. Uh, and, but that's not really surprising because, indeed, that's going to be one of the topics that will carry through the rest of the uh, campaign and up into the election. Um, perhaps you may find in the past some, some topics or some issues may reach a crescendo and then decline and, and may perhaps be replaced by something else. I think this one is going to run with the campaign all the way up into Election Day. Why? I think three reasons. One, certainly we are all expecting, uh, and we're probably wishing not, but this surge that may be coming in the fall. That's going to keep the issue front and center. Um, the economic impact, if that occurs, that, that, might, that might follow, which may result in the re-shutting down of various uh, uh, municipalities and states, et cetera. But then also there's a simple message in that tactic which is to communicate to voters something that's very easy to understand. There are scientific questions. There are questions about what happened in the early stages that one might not be so clear on. But it's very easy for voters to hear what Bob Woodward reported in terms of this clear knowledge that uh, um, the, the, the pandemic was real and the way that it was transmitted. And then to compare that, juxtapose that with a very different uh, public message coming out of the administration. That's an easy sell. sell. That's a slow-pitch softball issue, and, and I think that that's going to be something that the campaigns are going to uh, grapple with. So that, that was one of the thoughts I had. I had a few other thoughts on other aspects of it, but I'll, I'll stop there. 
Thomas, uh, we should just explain to uh, uh, viewers, listeners, in case they aren't aware of it, when when the vice president referred to plagiarism in Joe Biden, uh, what he had said is, and we cut the clip down a bit, that the that the Biden plan sounds like what the Trump plan for dealing with coronavirus had been. And of course, he took a shot at Joe Biden. We're talking about 1987 when Joe Biden first ran for president. One of the things that led him to withdraw from the race was he did, in fact, uh, plagiarize in some ways from a speech by Neil Kinnock, a former prime minister. You know, it, it was really going back in time to try to make that point. But go ahead and make whatever observation you want to, Thomas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy the things that, that, that people would step down from uh, – presidential races for back in the 80s you know i mean it, yeah. uh, it takes a lot it takes a lot these days if you look at 2016 um i the, the thing that really stood out to me was that it's you know P- pence is in many ways kind of the president of the of the emperor's new clothes club um he has to he has to come out and really de- defend a very difficult record you know uh in, ter- in terms of donald trump and even someone like Pence, who is a very clear and cogent and, and communicator who you can almost see or, or you can almost imagine, like, studying the tapes of Ronald Reagan, um, even, even it's, it's, it's hard for him. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of defending the indefensible, whether it's, you know, comments that Trump has made about McCain uh, or, or, or the military, or the the actions on uh, coronavirus, or the, the lack of action on coronavirus, um, it was for me it was almost painful to watch in in, in that regard. Uh, just having to step back away from the politics of it all and the reality, and, and look at the reality of it all. That was just that so, was, Patricia. That was one if thing I may, let me. Patricia, if I may, let me widen the lens to the larger question, which is. Um, There were many people who said yesterday uh, was going to be, in fact, one of the most important, if not the most important, vice presidential debates in the 40-year history of of those debates. Uh, And presumably it was for many reasons. Um, But the question really comes down to something very basic. Did you see anything on the stage last night in terms of the dynamic, the way they answered questions, the way they were, uh, uh, were there any gotcha moments? Anything that changes the direction that this presidential race appears to be headed, Patricia? Oh, absolutely not. No, um, but I would say if there are um, any voters out there who are leaning toward Biden or leaning toward Trump, they saw two reasons up there to feel pretty good about those decisions. Um, either one of these men are going to be. Uh, the oldest presidents ever to serve. Uh, it puts a real onus on who the vice president is and can the vice president do the job. And apart from Pence's answers, uh, which were um, ob- obfuscating, uh, hard to fact check, um, uh, not always factual, sometimes com- totally erroneous, um, his, his demeanor was extremely competent. And he came across as somebody of good character. He was very empathetic when uh, victims of any sorts of things, any victims' names uh, came up. He said, we, our sympathies go out to them. We care about them. He was just filling in all the gaping holes of President Trump. Anybody who feels like, oh, I would like President Trump. I like his policies, but gosh, what a jerk. You know, here's Mike Pence, who's not a jerk on the stage. And so I, I think 
it helps those voters feel better. For anybody uh, looking to get behind Joe Biden, and uh, he's pretty old, you know, there's an old man in front of you. Um, here's Kamala Harris, who's young, fresh, competent, um, and uh, clearly able to do the job. So we didn't change the direction, but I think I could certainly see how it would make it would reinforce people's choices and harden those decisions even further. Mm-hmm. I want to keep the ball in your court for just another moment, Patricia, and then bring everybody else in on this. Sam, um, let's play sound number three. This is very, very short, but it turned out to be a, a theme that Kamala Harris returned to again and again when Vice President Trump continually interrupted her, although more politely than Trump did against Biden last week. And when he kept going over his time, uh, here's how she responded. Well, let's get so I, no, but Susan, I, this is important. Susan, I, and I, I, I want to add, but if, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I have to I'm speaking. In. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I'm speaking. Uh, Patricia, an assertive way to try to deal with it. But here's what I want to read to you and then bring everybody else in on this. Uh, Republican pollster Frank Luntz, who has not been a big Trump He's not a big fan of President Trump. In his focus group of undecided voters last night, here's what he said about them. Uh, Kamala Harris is applauded for her knowledge, but they just don't like her, quote, condescending reactions. And the New York Times says that same that that some voters would view Ms. Harris's reactions as condescending and recoil at them, the laughs, head shakes, and are you kidding me expressions she displayed at various points in response to Vice President Mike Pence is not surprising, and neither is the lack of comparable backlash to Mr. Pence's similar uh, reactions. Um, Sexism never far away in situations like this, Patricia. (laughs) Never. Um, And I think uh, Kamala Harris, uh, the reality is that as a woman of color, she cannot, excuse me, she cannot get angry on that debate stage. She cannot come out as Joe Biden and say, just shut up, man, just shut up. You know, the way the vice president did last week. That's not in her. um, That's not on the list of things she's allowed to do. I'm sorry. I have some frog in my throat of some sort. Um, but That's I think right. she handled it very ably, and I would think those those uh, the responses that oh she's so condescending, she's treating him like a child. I would think mostly those came from men. Um, every woman has been talked over, talked through, talked down to, and it's just a matter of personal preference and hit or miss. Um, so let's see if it works this time to see what really does it. Sometimes I'll say zip it, zip it, zip it, you know. Excuse me, excuse me. You know, okay, uh huh, mm hmm. You know, it's, you know, women have to go deep to figure out what's the, what's the way to do this and still be likable. You know what? Everyone has to like you at the end of the day, especially if you're a woman in politics. And so, listen, she had she had a bigger challenge than Mike Pence did, and I think she met that challenge um, in that area last night. I think Patricia makes a, a really important point, Bill, and. We forget this, right? I mean, there have been four women on such a stage in our history, and this is the first woman of color who finds herself there. So this whole, uh, let's just call it this whole field of study is very immature, and we, we recognize that the dynamic 
in a debate between a man and a woman is just different than it's than when it's between a man and a man. And I think people were surprised uh, at the the wide range of reactions to Hillary Clinton in her in her debates with Donald Trump because she she too tried to push back on him on his uh, some of his tactics. And people saw her, you know, some people saw that as, as they, they weren't comfortable with it or they, they didn't like her because of that. And I think as we go along in politics, uh, especially at this national level, and as generational change occurs, this won't be an issue. But to me, it's always really surprising. I mean, what was Kamala Harris supposed to do? Just sit there and take it as, as the vice president talked over her and interrupted her and went over his time? I mean, what... What in what world is that just okay? Except in a world that doesn't recognize that people deserve to be treated on equal terms. Mm-hmm. Kurt, yeah, that, that that was something that we all were looking to. Um, I guess on the one hand, it's sort of a contrast. We were expecting to see a contrast from the previous uh, debate between uh, Trump and Biden, um, but then also we were looking to see how. Senator Harris would deal with that because I believe that, that this was more than what we saw there was more, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what we saw in the previous debate was more than simply Trump's idiosyncrasies. That's actually a, a campaign strategy that was developed, which was to, in a sense, dominate the conversation by interruptions and what have you. So we were anticipating that, number one, Harris was going to have to deal with that strategy. Uh, in the campaign, and then how she would actually perform. And I think she kind of exuded a type of, we can call it a type of controlled strength, right? Um, Patricia's correct. She she was in a uh, no-win situation. And, and Kevin's point is well taken in that uh, um, it, no matter what she did, in a sense, uh, men would perhaps have a hard time uh, digesting her approach. But I think that sense of controlled strength was demonstrated not just in the way that she responded, to uh, Vice President Pence, but also in the way that she dealt with the issues. And one of the uh, those issues that jumped right off the uh, screen to me was around the question of crime and, and law enforcement. Uh, I think uh, Pence came out swinging on the point with regard to Harris's record uh, in the in uh, uh, prosecutions of uh, of African American men. That I, I knew that was coming. We knew that was going to essentially come. I and I'm sure the Biden campaign prepared for that. But then also the way that she responded was to respond from a position of strength. She challenged the legitimacy of him even raising the question about her background, and he gave her an opportunity to speak to her her strength as a uh, prosecutor in California. Um, but then also also it gave her an opportunity to engage in the Breonna Taylor uh, issue and then also uh, uh, um, speak to that from a position of strength. Um, b- being willing to stand firm on the whole question of uh, of police reform and those things, so this 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 trope of strength, I think, was something that uh, uh, um, she embraced throughout the debate. The the last night just reminded me of something that I felt. Uh, during the first debate, during the first presidential debate, was that we really need a mute switch for for these things. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if 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 candidates do not follow rules that they agreed to, and if they continue to just um, uh, engage in in sexist and just outright rude behavior by 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 kind of trying to steamroll moderators, 
then they should be cut off. It doesn't matter if they're the president of the United States. It doesn't matter if they're somebody sitting in the audience. Um, it's, it was very frustrating to watch, and it made me, made me wonder at many times, what is the purpose of these debates anymore? Are we having all of this for the X number million of undecided voters who might be out there? Um, and also jumping on something that, that Kurt said, I was, I, I was very surprised when, um, when, when Pence essentially said that he didn't think systemic racism exists in the United States. Um, especially, you know, while also going after um, Harris for for her prosecution record, it's I, I I I couldn't I couldn't get the overall point he was trying to make. Um, I th- th- so to me that was very that was very shocking. You know, come to Atlanta, look at the redlining maps from decades ago, and lay them over our areas with high poverty today. Tell me it doesn't exist. Watch an eviction proceeding. Tell me it doesn't uh, exist. You know. All right. Uh- Thomas, thank you for uh, that. Uh, that's our last comment uh, before we have to get to a break. So let's do that. Let's take a break and come back and pick up on some of these themes that we've begun discussing uh, in relation to the vice presidential debate last night. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back. Uh, we have Professor Kurt Young of Clark Atlanta University. We have Thomas Wheatley of Atlanta Magazine, Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter, and her boss, Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. Kevin, I want to pick up on something Thomas said just before the break. You know, there, there, and, and Kurt uh, as well. You know, there always has been this kind of odd inconsistency uh, around uh, the way in which the uh, Trump campaign has tried to paint Kamala Harris as having uh, been a heavy-handed prosecutor of black people uh, when she was attorney general, and as they talk about uh, uh, Joe Biden and uh, and the uh, bills that uh, he sponsored back in the 90s, basically getting tough, uh, many cases on African-American uh, defendants, um, and the fact that they also accuse uh, the campaign, the Biden and Harris campaign of promoting civil unrest and being part of the socialists who are out in the street rioting. It's a very inconsistent message. And I think uh, hard for voters. I, I, I think they cancel each other out. And I'm not sure they have a bit hard to figure out if they have much impact. Yeah, I do think it's hard to figure that out. I mean, Thomas mentioned undecideds. Um, and of course, those are the folks to whom these debates matter, because Face it. I mean, most people who watch a debate have their candidate before they watch, and they think that candidate won the debate. I mean, I've read the releases and all the PR stuff today, and and everyone claims uh, their side won. It's 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 inevitable. You know, the, 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 another spot where that happened, Bill, that I thought was very uh, compelling was when when uh, uh, Vice President Pence use that line uh, about um, not undermining confidence in the vaccine. He, he really went at, at uh, Senator Harris at that point. And um, I thought it was effective because you could almost see she was a little 
taken aback, right, uh, uh, when she said, well, you know, I wouldn't, if only President Trump recommends it, I wouldn't do it. But it's also remarkable in that the very man who was is leading the White House task force on the pandemic, uh, his boss, the president, has undermined almost every bit of medical advice and science uh, and institutional um, support of certain policies. So it, to me, the same thing, like, she's under undermining confidence in a potential vaccine. Well, how about undermining the entire uh, public health care infrastructure of the world, which is what the president has more or less done? Um, you know, one thing I do want to take um, Kamala Harris to task for is that uh, she, on several occasions, but one in particular, um, was asked a direct question about a policy position and just wouldn't answer it. And Susan Page, who is a wonderful journalist, I actually don't know if the rules prevented follow-up questions. There were no follow-up questions. So it was sort of pick your adventure for these candidates. And, and uh, Mike Pence skipped answering a whole bunch of stuff, too. But especially on the question of the future of the Supreme Court, which I think is so essential, I do think that there are um, there's a there's a storyline or a narrative that Democrats want to increase the number of the, on the Supreme Court to 11 to quote unquote pack it so they can start to stack up some liberal judges to answer the conservative voices that are going to be added and have been added. Um, and she just did not answer that question when asked directly. And I, I would I, like to have heard an answer. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it, Patricia. Sam, let's play cut number four, which is exactly that. When Susan Page uh, asked about this notion that Democrats want to pack the Supreme Court. Over four million people have voted. People are in the process of voting right now. And so Joe has been very clear, as the American people are, let the American people fill that seat in the White House, and then we'll fill that seat on the United States Supreme Court. And to your point, Susan, the, the issues before us couldn't be more serious. There's the issue of choice, and I will always fight for a woman's right to make a decision about her own body. It should be her decision and not that of Donald Trump and, and the vice president, Michael Pence. I, I couldn't be more proud to serve as vice president to a president who stands without apology for the sanctity of human life. I'm pro-life. I, I don't apologize for it. Senator Harris. People, Susan, are voting right now. They'd like to know if you and Joe Biden are going to pack the Supreme Court if you don't get your way in this nomination. Let's talk about packing. You once Come again on. gave a non-answer. Joe Biden gave a non-answer. <laughs> trying to answer you the now. American people deserve a straight answer. And, and if you haven't figured it out yet, the straight answer is they are going to pack the Supreme Court if they somehow win this election. So, Thomas, uh, Patricia's point is well made. In fact, uh, when you start listening to that soundbite, you don't even realize that what she is, Kamala Harris has just been asked about is whether Democrats do, in fact, intend to pack the court. She would rather turn it toward an issue that she understands there are a great many women out there who care about deeply, and that's the right to choice. Uh, so by no means should we suggest that uh, it was uh, uh, Vice President Pence who did all the obfuscating in this debate last night. No, no. I mean, no, de definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, um, but, but, you know, I also have to say it was, it, it, you know, when asked about Roe v. Wade, Pence wasn't very clear himself. You know, I mean, it was it, so. So there were all of the, the and there, there were several issues where it was 
you know, if, if we would have maybe stuck, stuck to the time limits, we could have gotten a lot more information. Or if, if you know, Patricia's um, totally correct, if, if, if we could have followed up on it, we maybe could have gotten some answers. I mean, I also recall that, you know, Pence was a little bit evasive about the peaceful transition of power, which is insane that that's a question that we even have to ask um, in a debate. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think there's sure. some political gains. Yes, I think there's some political gamesmanship there, uh, and maybe gains gameswomanship as well, right? Um, because it doesn't benefit, despite how much the public needs to hear this discussion. It doesn't benefit Biden Harris to address that question and make that the topic, whether or not they'll be moving towards back in the court. Uh, make that the topic of discussion in the run-up to the hearings. Um, because for them, they want that conversation to be a discussion about, as uh, I think Thomas just mentioned, the reversing of Roe v. Wade, um, the, the eliminating of uh, uh, the key, the remaining elements of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Uh, that is the level of the discussion that the campaign, the Biden-Harris campaign, want the conversation around um, nominee um, 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 Barnett to be about, not about whether or not the discussion circles around um, the act, actions of the Democrats. Of course, Chuck Schumer uh, um, has already made it clear that all options are on the table, but I don't think we're going to hear anything beyond that in any future debate uh, in any pronouncements coming out of the vice president's um, um, campaign. Kurt's absolutely Kevin? right. The the campaigns have the storyline they want to stick with. And for the Democrats, there's several, but the key one being the pandemic and that the polls show that people think that agree with the notion that the new president should should pick the Supreme Court justice. And then on the Republican side, yeah. um, there are you know other issues that they're going to stick with, including um, – the whole question around uh, violence in the streets and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, another thing I thought was remarkable, Bill, and, and I was reminded as we discussed these topics, we recall that in the, per, in the presidential debate, uh, Joe Biden was most effective when he looked right at the camera and, and really came across as talking directly to people, to the mm -hmm. audience, right? And so you saw both of them last night take tries at that, right, where they would just sort of catch themselves, look at the camera, talk, you know, literally say, you, the American people, uh, that kind of thing. I thought that was sort of interesting and not something you would get away with necessarily in a debate that wasn't virtual. Um, I, well, go ahead, Kurt. Well, I just want to add one quick piece to, to, to Kevin's point. And also, Harris continually referring to the vice president, president as Joe. Right, which is in the sense to try to communicate. Now, not, that's not new, but it was really pronounced because this is the first debate that uh, the vice presidents uh, and the vice president candidates are uh, engaged in. So you have someone other than Biden now speaking about Biden in the simple term as Joe, Joe, and of course the idea is to communicate uh, in a different kind of way to the to the voter. Patricia, I think that's so right, what Kurt just said. I mean, he is just plain Joe, and that's what they want him to be. It has been his image from, the, from his first entry into the Senate in 1972, and it continues to be who, they want, who he wants to be and who people like Kamala Harris will portray him as being, right? 
absolutely. And not only do they want him to be just Joe, they want her to be just Joe's friend. You know, I think there is a lot of anxiety among <laughs> Democrats that um, Kamala Harris is perceived as liberal, as extreme, as um, she's certainly not perceived as socialist, but she's attacked in that way. Those mm-hmm. attacks are not working against Joe Biden. Maybe they can do it against Kamala Harris. So her job last night was focus on Joe. And I'm Joe's friend. There's nothing to be worried about. If Joe dies, it's going to be okay. So that was sort of the implicit message. No offense. Um, and I thought she you did know, that. Not- it, they're not that good of friends. I don't know if they're that good of friends, but I think um, – Everybody does kind of feel like he's Joe, and um, and she did a very good job keeping the focus on him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's really interesting, Thomas. Um, when you compare them, I'm thinking about other pairings of vice presidential and presidential running mates. Um, so here's a great example. In 1992, Bill Clinton surprised the political universe when he picked another white Southern male to be his running mate. He picked Al Gore to be his running mate. And the two bonded immediately. They immediately, after the convention in New York, embarked on a whistle-stop tour together. We saw them together routinely. It was like a buddy movie between the two of them. That has not been the way that... and, And the pandemic does play some role in this. But mm-hmm. but the Biden campaign seems to have kept Kamala Harris a little bit at arm's length, although I think they are both headed to the southwest together today. They make appearances in Arizona, I believe, uh, today. But it, you do wonder about the whether the Biden campaign is thinking about what Patricia is saying is, you know, yeah, she, it's wonderful. She is a uh, she's a great choice in many ways. We got to be careful. Yeah, well, I you know, I. I, I think that the pandemic probably has a has has a, a lot to do with that. Like, like like you said, I mean, this is a this is a campaign that we have never seen before, and you know, I hope that we will never kind of see again in in the sense of the restrictions placed on it and placed on us. Um, there there could be some concern from the from the Biden campaign that you know that that Harris is like some people have tried to paint her as being uh, far left. You know, she's from. The, the the wild world of California, which is is, is apparently the you know the, the the worst spot to be in a, in a socialist paradise, but I, I I think it has more to do with the with the pandemic. Um, that that's that's me personally. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and when we come back, let's uh, change the subject uh, and get a couple of other topics in our conversation on political rewind. I want to do a genuinely a lightning round and get very quick responses with the time we have left on a couple of different topics before we completely leave the vice presidential debate. And Kurt, I'll start with you to get a very short answer on this one. There are those who have been saying, both Republicans and Democrats, that since he was diagnosed with COVID, President Trump did have an opportunity to reset and to say, oh, my goodness, this is a terrible disease. I'm now going to really uh, do everything I can. I feel terrible for the people out there who are suffering with it. He hasn't done that. Uh, Did Mike Pence in any way reset the message last night? If people are voting on the way in which COVID is going to be handled, did the vice president do anything to change those who are going to vote against the administration because they don't think you're doing a good job? Just, again, real quick around on this. 
Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I agree with Patricia's point earlier. I don't think much was done to change anyone's view. I think what it's, what it, what it will do is uh, to trigger or increase turnout in the different camps. Uh, that's what I think is, uh, the result of the, uh, the debate was. Thomas, I, I I agree with Kurt. I don't think that it, I I don't think it changed many minds, moved anybody over. It, it, it was. It was just kind of underscoring, underlying um, what we already knew. Patricia? Uh, I agree. I'm going to go with the team. Um, the question, the only question it raised for me, and Thomas mentioned this earlier, is sort of what I think it's time to reevaluate the, the format of these debates and the purpose and the answers that we are or aren't getting. I'd like to see a reevaluation of how these function because I don't think they're really serving voters as well as they should. All right. So, Kevin, uh, what I'm hearing from everybody else, and you get the last chance to weigh in on this, is that last night's debate um, didn't really, maybe didn't accomplish much of anything. I think uh, both of the vice presidential candidates did what they were expected to do. At times, were both effective. At times, both stumbled. And in the end, in a debate, again, what we're after is the undecideds. And you have to ask yourself, did anything happen to help them get undecided? And how, how many of them were even really watching at this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, we also don't know. This may have been the last debate that we're going to have, as you already heard on uh, NPR News a little while ago, the debate commission, the nonpartisan debate commission, announced that it was going to be done virtually because President Trump is positive with the virus. And the president on Fox Business toward Maria Bartiromo that he will not participate in a virtual debate. Thomas, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I, I you know, Trump's Trump's style has always been say something to get you talk about to get you talking about something else other than what just happened. Um, and he will uh, it, there, there's a high chance that he will backtrack on that. I mean, just look at the stimulus, you know, the, the second round of stimulus. And so I think that if he felt um, I, I hate to be conspiratorial, but if there were concerns about the debate last night and ah, we don't want people focusing on this and that, get something out there to kind of push the news cycle forward and he can always backtrack if he wants because he's done it before you know patricia the new york times in their uh, story on the fact the president has said he will not participate in a virtual debate uh reported that in 1960 the third debate between kennedy and nixon was done by remote I did not remember that. And believe me, I'm old enough to have remembered that. Uh, Kennedy was in New York. Nixon was in Los Angeles. So that Patricia of the New York Times says, what the heck? It's been done this way before. Yeah, not only not the same room, not the same coast. So, yes, it has been done before. Yeah. Um, uh, but I agree with Thomas. That I don't think this is the last word we've heard from President Trump on debates. Yeah. yeah. I think that's probably right. Uh, Kevin, let me change the subject real quickly, uh, because both the uh, AJC and certainly GPB News are paying close attention to what's happening with COVID-19 in Georgia. Uh, The governor had a news conference yesterday in which he praised Georgians. Uh, He said that you have we've done what we needed to do to mitigate the virus. He points out that the uh, incidence of new virus infections has dropped 70 percent from a high point in July. Uh, The problem is public health officials say yes, but we still remain at a high plateau with well over 
an average of a thousand cases reported uh, over seven day rolling averages. So he would say we're not out of the woods either, but we do have to say the state has made some progress, yes? I think there's no question that things have improved. Uh, the argument is really about what kind of plateau you want to accept, right? You mentioned 1,000 cases a day, and I think the seven-day rolling average of deaths is around 34 or 35. So you have to ask yourself, are we satisfied if 1,000 people a day get sick and about 35 you know, deaths, new deaths are reported a day. You know, people, the way the reporting works, it's hard to say how many people die on a day. But, mm -hmm. um, and is that good enough? I mean, it, and um, I think a lot of public health experts would say no, and it could be so much better. Yeah. Um, uh, Thomas, you're one of the young guys, Thomas. Are you taking <laughs> this virus seriously? <laughs> um, my, uh, my, I, I, I look young. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not truly young. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm taking it very seriously. My friends are taking it very seriously. Um, everybody I know in Atlanta is is taking it very, very seriously. Um, but I, I think that I think that Kevin really like, you know, Kevin really pinpointed it. It's it's how much are we going to accept? You know, we can. What what are we going to choose um, in this in this debate over economy and, and human and human life um, and public health? Um, Kurt, and, I'm, yeah, I'm going to give you. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're really uh, short on time. Kurt, uh, it continues to take a heavier toll on African Americans, and that will be an issue that the African American community, all the rest of us, better take very seriously. Yes. Absolutely. I was thinking about that um, as we were having this conversation and, and uh, what may seem, it's, it's always the canary in the mind discussion, right? What may seem to be a plateau in one perspective actually continues to be a major crisis in another community. And that's certainly the case in the African-American community. All right. We are completely out of time. Uh, Professor Kurt Young, uh, Patricia Murphy, uh, Thomas Wheatley, Kevin Riley, thank you all so much for this conversation uh, today, again, uh, we're finishing up our pledge period here at GPB. If you can help us, go to gpb.org. We'd sure appreciate it. We're back with another show, of course, tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.